The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. You can open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 61. This week I was ministering to a brother who feels like the darkness won't lift. And just asking, how do I keep going? What does God want from me? And I'm finding myself lacking hope for change. And I want to hope in my God. Where do I go and what do I do to see my desires shift, my disposition alter? And such is... um, Such is a very hard place to be. I wrote a lot more than I'm about to read, but I wrote, My counsel's not new, but because it comes from the Lord, I and you need to trust that it is the means for seeing our convictions, our feelings, our hopes change. What must we do when the darkness won't lift? We guard ourselves from unbelief, Hebrews 3.12. We remain in relationships where we can receive and give exhortation to keep trusting, Hebrews 3.13. We take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.4-6. We clothe ourselves in the armor of God, Ephesians 6.10-18. We humble ourselves before God by continuing to cast our cares on Him. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. We resist the devil by reminding ourselves that other believers are facing similar struggles and by rehashing the promise that God will restore, will confirm, will strengthen, and will establish you. 1 Peter 5, 9 and 10. We preach to ourselves, calling our souls to hope in God and committing to praise Him. Psalm 42. We rehash what is true and honorable and just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Philippians 4.8 We practice what we have learned, received, heard, and seen to be true. Philippians 4.9 We set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Colossians 3.2 We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly while we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Colossians 3.16 We live according to the Spirit, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, Romans 8, 5. We take every opportunity we can to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. We seek to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 23 through 24. We recall the parable of the persistent widow in order to always pray and not lose heart. Luke 18, 1 through 8. We consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Hebrews 12, 4. We seek to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. 
Hebrews 6.12, we seek not to grow weary in doing good, confident that in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 6.9, we remind ourselves that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22, we remember that since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5.9, and we remember that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.39, we have to battle the lies of the devil with what is true. And what is in this book is true. Even when it seems that the darkness won't lift. And that there's an enduring night. We have to rest confident in a God who said, not only will there be dawn, but there will be noon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would come, that you would meet, that you would encounter, that you would help souls to be trusting in you who are always faithful, in you who do not leave us or forsake us. I pray that hope would be ignited in this room this morning, that there would be comfort for those who mourn, That there would be freedom for those who feel enslaved. That there would be healing and binding up those who are broken hearted. That there would be hope in a God who will return and right all wrongs and overcome all ill. Who will work justice and righteousness in the earth. Heighten our hope in you. So that when the darkness does not lift, we rest confident that mercy will come at dawn, that spring always overcomes winter. So meet us as we come as hungry, weary souls needing to be filled Through Christ we pray. Amen. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me. The Spirit of the Sovereign Yahweh. That's what Jesus declares here. These are the very words of the Christ. Jesus puts them into his own mouth in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit, that is the presence, the very being, a manifestation of who He is, is now resting upon me. The very one who is sovereign over all. That's L-O-R-D in lowercase. It's the sovereign Yahweh. His name. The causer of all things. This God is upon me. To this end. He's anointed me to bring good news, gospel joy, gospel fruit, gospel healing to the poor. 
Let me turn this on here. The summary of the mission comes in that declaration, He's called me to bring good news. And then you get the description of it, and there's five clarifying statements that unpack the nature of this good news, which last week we saw has at its core the reigning God. A reigning God who saves and satisfies believing sinners ultimately through Christ's life, His death, and His resurrection. He saves and He satisfies, and He can do it because He's the reigning God. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who, bring good, who brings good news. Announcing peace, He brings good news. That's gospel. Announcing peace Proclaiming news of happiness, declaring, quotation marks, our God reigns over darkness, over cancer, over brokenness of soul, over a sense of imprisonment. He can intrude into your loved one's heart who's straying from God. He can overcome the resistance. We can resist the Holy Spirit for a very long time until God says, enough, and then He just overcomes it like that. So we pray. We plead, we long, and we keep hoping, hoping for dawn. He has sent me to this end. Five things. Number one, to bind up the brokenhearted. Number two, to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound. Three, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Now I see a breadth in that all. And then he focuses in and says specifically, not just all, but to grant those who mourn in Zion. So, I'm wondering if, if there he's distinguishing the many and then a localized group associated with Jerusalem of his day, that is Jews, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint heart, that they may be called oaks. Of righteousness, unswerving in the storms of life, sturdy, strong, beautiful, without oak wilt. Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for splendor. That's all it says in the Hebrew text. The planting of the Lord for splendor, for for beauty. And the ESV, I think rightfully, has interpreted that, that is, for the splendor of God, that the people will somehow be, be uh, instruments wherein God will be exalted in increasing ways. He will be displayed as beautiful, beautiful, through these people. Let me just finish reading and then we'll hit this question. The garment of praise instead of a faint Spirit, 
we'll see the, the language of faint spirit there. It's the exact same word that we saw earlier in, I believe it's Isaiah 42, where he says, a faintly burning wick he will not blow out. A bruised reed he won't break. That's good news. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So we have this declaration of this unpacking of this good news mission, and then the initial statement of the results, oaks of righteousness. When Isaiah first unpacked, first declared this prophetic word to his contemporaries, who did they believe the me to be? So last week we went through and looked at three Spirit of the Lord texts. First one, Isaiah 11, verse 2. This root of Jesse that will sprout like new creation, like the Garden of Eden all over again, will enjoy the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of the fear of God will rest upon him so that this coming king, Isaiah chapter 11, will be like a movable temple. Wherever he goes, God's there. And people will see the presence of God resting upon the person of God. Second, Isaiah 42, it's a servant song, a servant person song, where he declares the spirit, or or rather, God declares of him in that text, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit on him. So now when we get the talking servant, When we get the talking servant here, and he's claiming himself to have the Spirit on him, I think that the audience should have recognized this one is the anticipated king from the beginning of the book, and the suffering servant person, as opposed to the suffering servant people, the suffering servant person of the second half of the book. I think that proper sight would have directed them that way. I think that Isaiah... Pardon? Of a coming one who is speaking. In the same way that in Isaiah 50... First of all, Isaiah 50, the second of the servant songs, we saw the servant person talking in first person. The Lord has given me the tongue of one who is taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. And it's the servant person who's doing this declaration. Um, Similarly, in Isaiah... 
Oh, Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands. The Lord called me from the womb to be his servant. And then he says, the Lord said to me, the servant, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations. And it's, the first, it's, it's a first-person speech by the servant person. Right, the prophetic speaking of God, um, putting words in the mouth of his promised Messiah. I think that that's what Isaiah understood. Most of his audience didn't have ears to hear his, his book. It says in Isaiah 29, 10, and 11, to them his words in the book were like a book that was sealed. But the day is coming when, verse 18, the deaf will hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind will see. And so, but for Isaiah, he was one who was proclaiming the grace that is now ours. He was one of those who was searching and inquiring carefully, says Peter, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, searching and inquiring carefully, inquiring to know what person and what time the Spirit of Christ in him, in him was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to him that he was writing not for himself but for us. That, I believe, is God's commentary on what Isaiah thought he was writing about. And he understood that this was not him. Though he was verbalizing in first person, he was not identifying himself with this one who was bringing good news. Rather, consistently throughout the book, good news is something that would come. Just as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, in that this is how he starts his, his book, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, sorry, a servant of Christ Jesus, servant in the sense of the servant person gives birth to servants at the end of Isaiah. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel, good news, Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's set me apart to proclaim good news. And we see it first in Isaiah, that language of gospel, good news. Set apart for the gospel that finds its source and content in God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. My point is this. The gospel, from Paul's perspective, in the Old Testament text, promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, was predictive, not enjoyed. It was pointing ahead. So when we see... Something like Isaiah 61, and this man is saying, I've come to proclaim good news to you. We're supposed to understand it as a word embodied through a future deliver in, in the mouth of a future deliverer that would have been only hope for the remnant of the Old Testament. Why did the Jews regard Isaiah as a prophet? Why would they listen to him? Um, 
Isaiah predicted three events. He predicted the downfall of the northern kingdom. He predicted the downfall of the southern kingdom. And he predicted the return back to the land under Cyrus. Those were three contemporary events that Isaiah predicted. And I think that one of the ways that God identified who his prophets were amidst a sea of false prophets. Remember, there is one Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal, but we don't remember anything that they had to say. And the reason that there's that distinction is because they didn't only predict future eschatological messianic days, they predicted more immediate events. And it's when those immediate events happened that they knew they had a prophet in their midst who was proclaiming the true word of God. So that Ezekiel 33.30 becomes true. Well, if, if he was right on this one, there's a high-level chance that he's right on what's coming next. So that God can say, through Ezekiel, I mean, this, we're not in Ezekiel at the moment. Forty years of long, hard ministry Ezekiel the prophet had in a 48-chapter book, we see no hint at all that anyone in his 40-year ministry ever listened to him. And God says in Ezekiel 33:30, To them, you are nothing but a singer of love songs, an entertainer. But when what I have declared comes to pass, as surely as it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. How distant were the three events? The fall of the northern kingdom happened in his lifetime. The fall of Judah happened 150 years later. And then the return happened another 60 years after that. Let's consider... To bind up the brokenhearted. The language of binding up, that's the language of you've got an external wound and we need to wrap it. And yet, what needs to be wrapped is your ailing heart. And one of the beauties of the New Covenant promises is that in the Old Covenant, God commanded Israel with things like, you circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. You've got a heart problem, fix it. He just commanded them to fix it. And yet, to take the blade into their spiritual soul and do an excision, as much as they would try, it would kill them. And we're supposed to connect the dots that way. That their spiritual brokenness was so deep, they couldn't fix it. And they needed to realize it. So, I can't obey what you've commanded, O God. For me to fix my heart problem, I need you to come in. And the beauty of the new covenant is that's exactly what he promises. Wounded hearts get bound up through the good news bringing Messiah. At the beginning of the book, in describing the state of Israel... The state of Isaiah's contemporaries, 
This is what we read of them. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged from Him. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Listen, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of your foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed or, here's our word, bound up or softened with oil. So he's portraying the spiritual sickness of this people as a body that is completely battered and, and broken. And that's the problem in the beginning of the book. And now the solution comes through this person who's entering in as a messenger of hope to bind up broken-hearted people. When the righteous cry for help, the hope is the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. That's the text we just read. For thus, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. If you find your heart sick today, we have two things. One, a God who is able to bind up broken-hearted people. And the condition? Identify your own lowliness before Him. In contrition, cry out. If you feel God working in your soul, notice I didn't say, if your soul is working. I said, if you, if you feel a disposition toward God out of your brokenness, give thanks to Him and run. Fall before Him. He moves toward those who are contrite of spirit. He's a God who's able to bind up broken-hearted people. And that's the hope of the gospel. Number two, to proclaim liberty to captives. Jesus enters in and he's drawn toward places where those who've done wrong hang out. He's drawn to prisons. He's drawn to captives. And he comes to set at liberty those who are bound up. Now, look at, look at how, we re- how we read about this. Because the, it's very easy to just spiritualize all the content. And I think we're supposed to. But Jesus didn't just die to free people from eternal torment. Especially eternal torment, but not solely eternal torment. 
But this part identifies that the language of captivity in Isaiah is talking about at least one aspect is spiritual enslavement. And that when we read he comes to free captives, we're supposed to be thinking that way. Notice, who is blind but my servant people? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who's blind is my dedicated wonder? Blind is the servant of the Lord. This people, he, sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he doesn't hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and to make it glorious. But this people, they've rejected the law. This people is plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. I think he's ultimately talking about the spiritual state of his audience. Enslaved. And yet, what their, their spiritual enslavement would give rise to, to practical, tangible imprisonment under the hands of the Assyrians if they're not dead, or the Babylonians if they're not already dead. They would be taken captive and bound up so that their, their physical experience was merely a, a testimony of their spiritual state. Now you remember in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is hanging out in prison. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Okay, bro, I mean, cuz, are you the one or are you not the one? And remember what Jesus said to him. Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Leopards are cleansed. Deaf hear. Jesus is talking about tangible, physical healings. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And then he adds this at the end. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Why would he say that to John the Baptist? Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Remember where John is. Remember what the Messiah was called to do. And remember what Jesus didn't do for John. What didn't he do for John? He didn't deliver him out of his prison. He was in a physical prison and yet his soul was free. And Jesus let the physical prison stay all the way till his beheading. Though you die, yet shall you live, and not a hair of your head will be lost. Craziness. I, it makes me, it seems like there's a very direct connection to the serious construction of our sermon text today from Galatians, which begins, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Um, that seems very directly related to what you're talking about. For So, in our text, in Galatians, the freedom that Paul was declaring, for freedom, Christ has set us free, freedom from what in that text? The law. The Mosaic covenant, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, 3, 9, bore a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. 
So that those who lived under it ended up in prison because of their inability to keep the law. What the law was powerless to do, weakened as it was by the flesh, Paul says in Romans 8, God did. The law couldn't change the people. And so, rather than enjoying the blessing, they enjoyed the curse. And yet, into that world, God sends His Son. Born under the law, and yet obeys the law. He's not bound by the law. And then He enters in to free those who are all distant from God due to their own sinfulness. The liberty proclaimed to captives is first and foremost a liberty from sin's enslavement. But Jesus comes doing physical healings. He heals the, the blind man and one chapter later gives him spiritual sight. He gives physical bread to 5,000 in order to teach his disciples using that exact language, do you not recognize that I am the bread of life? The physical realities were designed to push the audiences to levels of dependence, levels of surrender, to see their need that Jesus was the satisfier, Jesus was the freer. And the joy of the gospel is that it won't end in a spiritual reality, but that in a new heavens and a new earth with new bodies, there will be perfect freedom. Dr. Nacelli, who you know, who taught this class for the semester I was away, he likes to envision that there will be no barriers in heaven. So if you want to swim to the bottom of Lake Superior, you can just dive in and go. Or if you want to kind of soar over Everest with those few birds that have to make it over, you know, you don't need the chopper. Just, just get up there with them. That there's, this is his own envisioning of, you know, like what will freedom look like? And... Just not being bound. Uh, Jesus' resurrected state allowed him to walk through a doorway. I mean, a, a closed door, that is. What about us? John? The, uh, I want to go back to the, the words we've been looking at in Isaiah 61. And it's fascinating to me that, uh, that the promise is to bind the brokenhearted which bind up, which is an interesting word, binding them up, which the next words are going to free those that are bound in sin, and the two are the same. I mean, binding up the brokenhearted is healing in a physical sense, in a, in a, in a fuller sense, and then the other is uh, the, those who are bound that are captive of sin. I mean, and he does the same thing in the next verses where he talks about uh, year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance. I mean, there's these contrasts mm-hmm. that are just inextricably together. They're, anyway, sorry. It's good. <laughs> good. Good, careful eye on the text. I am the Lord. I've called you. This is a you third feminine singular, or sorry, second feminine singular, talking about the city who is the bride of, of God. I have called you in righteousness. Sorry. 
Am I right? 42, 6, and 7. No, this is not the city. This is, this is you, second masculine singular. This is the person, the servant person. Sorry, this is the servant person. I had the wrong text in my mind. Um, this is Jesus. I have called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So in Isaiah 61, he's merely declaring, I'm fulfilling the mission I was given in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 49, thus says the Lord, in the time of favor I answered you, in a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. This is the servant person still. This is Jesus. I will give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. This this week I got to attend a preaching workshop for three days. And we looked for the three days at the book of Exodus. And in Genesis 15, what God declares is, You're going to be oppressed for 430 years, but after that, I will judge the nation that has bound you. Then we have Moses show up under the power of God with the God-damning staff in his hand, and through that, he judges all the gods. Pastor Sam quoted this text, the Passover text, uh, when he opened the service this morning. He will, God will judge all the gods of Egypt. All the plagues, they're called signs. Signs. That's the main word. They're not called plagues in Exodus. They're called signs. All the signs that God was doing through Moses were by their nature declaring judgment on enemy powers that held Israel in slavery. And it's not by chance then that in the Gospel of John, the primary word that he uses for Jesus' miracles, signs. That when we read in the Gospel account, Jesus showing up and doing signs, we're supposed to see them as declarations of judgment in the same pattern as in the Exodus. He's declaring judgment against the powers of darkness. And that's why he has to bind the strong man in order to set the demon possessed for free. He binds him up. And every work of Christ is identifying, I'm overcoming your kingdom. I am stronger. Greater am I who is in you than he who is in the world. And we're supposed to find hope in that. Hope for our own wounded souls. Reminding ourselves when the lies come, you're still enslaved to pornography. You haven't gotten over that bitterness problem. You're as lazy as you've ever been. Look at that, you're still in bed. You said you wanted to get up and do your devotions? (laughs) It's defeated you over and over again. You're still enslaved. Those are lies. 
And so we face the lies with the declaration that he has freed us and greater is he who is in us. And we get up and we work. We work whatever it takes. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in us both to will. He's the one who alters our will, alters our desire to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's the one who alters our actions. So we work with great fear, knowing that he's the one who wills and works within us. Trusting that he's big, trusting that he is able. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. So, Brother John already drew attention, or was it Brother Rick? It's always one of those two, right? So, it's one of those two. It's um, the year and the day. The year and the day. Now, we read about this from a number of different angles. Number one, the year of favor. This seems to be an allusion back to the pattern of Jubilee. Every seven years, Israel was to have a year of release. But then after seven sevens, after the 49th year was the big daddy year of Jubilee. And all debt was supposed to be annihilated. All those who had been in servitude were supposed to be set free. And so Jesus comes following the pattern of what should have been in Israel, a recurring system, but it wasn't. And there were 77s that Israel failed to keep, 490 years of failing to keep the year of release. And that's why they had 70 years to make up, 70 years of exile, we're told. And it was in that 70th year of exile that Daniel is awakened in Daniel chapter 9 and remembers, oh, we're supposed to, uh, Jeremiah had told us, Jeremiah 29 70 years is how long the exile is going to be. And it's because we failed to keep all these years of release. 70 years. And then God, that's in Daniel chapter 9, that's when God tells Daniel, you've been expecting 70 years. I'm telling you, you're going to wait 70 weeks of years. 490 more years until full reconciliation with God will come. And it'll happen under one that Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, calls the Messiah, the Anointed One. When He comes, what we're expecting is the ultimate release. And here's here's how it's laid out. You shall consecrate the 50th year, proclaim liberty through the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you return to... To his clan. The year of Jubilee, which in the Old Testament was merely a pointer to ultimate release, ultimate freedom. And Jesus comes and says, I'm here to proclaim this year. It's not only a year of favor, it's a day. And I, we're just supposed to feel that difference. A year, we can settle in. A day, it's going to be over quick. A day of vengeance. It took six hours on the cross to fill up 
all the wrath of God against all the elect for all time to satisfy the wrath of God. In one day, six hours, it was done. Zechariah chapter 3 worded that. He anticipated that in a single day, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10-ish, verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's what he does. In a single day, it happens. It's the day of the Lord. But that one day of the Lord found in the life of Jesus, anticipates another day of the Lord against all who are not in Jesus. For you and I, the day of the Lord has already been inaugurated, already started. And the day is supposed to include both judgment and life. New creation is birthed out of the fires of judgment. And Jesus bears all those judgment for us, and that's why for all of us, If we're in Jesus, we're part of a new creation already. All the hope, all the good news of this text is ours already, even though it's not fully consummated. But that day that Jesus bore at the cross, looking at us in the eye, holding back all the fires of God's wrath against us, in that day, there were countless thousands upon thousands who would never surrender their lives to him, and all those fires of wrath will catch up to them, and it will be the day of the vengeance of our God. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, Isaiah says. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up. It shall be brought low. Wail for the day, he says. The day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Many people, it, just yesterday, uh, a young student girl said, I have a co-worker who says she won't surrender to Jesus because um, in the Old Testament, God was a God of hate. This text is not an Old Testament text. I mean, it's Old Testament, but it's anticipating the New Testament. What we have in the Old Testament is a God who for thousands of years forbears with sinful humanity and doesn't wipe them all out. But the day is coming, New Testament, when he will. When he will. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against all their hosts. He's devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. For the Lord has a day of vengeance and a year of recompense. For the cause of Zion. I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life blood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption. The two go hand in hand. He is bringing vengeance as blessing to those who've surrendered to him. 
That's how Paul reasons in Romans 12. Don't respond to evil with evil, but respond to evil with good because vengeance is mine, I will repay. You gain fuel to love your enemy today because you can be confident I will judge tomorrow. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. Now notice what Jesus does. This is how he inaugurates his his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He draws in a little Isaiah 42, which happens to actually be part of the Greek translation of our text, but it's not in the Hebrew text. Recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period, roll up the scroll. Why didn't he finish the sentence? This is how he stops. He ends the quote right there, and he doesn't finish the second half of, verse, of the beginning of verse 2. Because it's future. Because there's a year of favor, and I think we're supposed to view what's going on right now. This, this age of the church is a year of favor, a year of opportunity to proclaim terms of peace before the day of vengeance arrives. That you can get right with the great king now in order to be saved by the great king later. So Jesus has come in his first appearing, with a different role than he bears at his second appearing. When he comes again, it will not be riding on a donkey, it will be on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. He won't have to cut with his hand, he'll just declare it, and the end of the battle will be done. Then the king of kings... Then the kings of the earth, rather, and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Take comfort. That our God is not going to pour out such wrath on us. But it will be real and it will be intense. To comfort all who mourn. This is how he started this second half of the book. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. I've covered it. I've covered you. Forgiven. And your tears will be wiped away. 
Thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy places. I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. I've seen his ways. I know he's a sinner, but I will heal. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. This reversal of mourning will give rise to an oil of gladness, a garment of praise, a beautiful headdress. All of these are associated with priesthood. We're told that the priest would have a crown. Indeed, all of his garments, we're told, are for two things, for beauty and for glory. I think as people would see the priest, they were supposed to be awakened to the preciousness and the beauty and splendor of our God. And what was true of the priest as one who had encountered the presence of God, who enjoyed the favor of God, who saw the forgiveness of his sins and could stand before the people representing God, is now going to be true of the people as a whole. Ashes, a sign of mourning, of sorrow, mourning, the brokenness, faint spirit, I already mentioned, the same language used of a faintly burning wick that we're told he will not blow out. The good news is is, is just hopeful. Um, so I, I just want to end where we started. If you or someone you know is in a spot where you feel like the darkness won't lift. And you're longing to find hope that it will. Fight. Fight. Reminding yourself with what is true. Paul with only an eternal perspective that is so easily lost when the giant seems so big, so big and so close, and the sun's rays are all of a sudden grow strangely dim because of the shadow that's cast over us by the bigness of this enemy. Into such a world with a, with a step back and, and see, see perspective, he says... The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, 
in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time beaten, shipwrecked, stripped naked, enduring challenge. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray as we ought, and we feel like God is so distant, and yet, in that moment, the Spirit is even closer than we know, interceding Himself, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So know, if it feels like the darkness will not lift, you have a companion who sticks closer than a brother. He will not leave you or forsake you. Good news is yours, and it will, it will come to fruition. Hebrews chapter 2. He has subjected everything to Christ, but right now it does not feel like everything is subjected. But one day we will see. We will see. Father, go before us. Be our help. Thank you for good news, for life, for promise. Bind up broken hearts today. The board is filled with brokenhearted people. And you have come to restore even as you free. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Claiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.